to turn to Esther chapter 7. This one's a little shorter than some of the other chapters. But it is a very important one. We noted at the very end of uh, chapter 6 that the eunuchs have arrived to bring Haman to the feast that has been prepared by um, Esther. So the king and Haman went into feast with King Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Hasherus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the garden palace to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that! So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Glorious Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, we ask that we would indeed have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know you better. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we may know the hope to which we have been called. The riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and of your incomparably great power for those of us who believe. And we ask this for your exaltation and our edification. In Christ's name, amen. Perhaps you remember Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It is, of course, one of the more famous children's stories. 
If you're a child, perhaps you can still remember your parents reading it to you. If your parents didn't read it to you, then let them be summarily rebuked at this moment. (laughs) But poor Alexander had a really bad day that continued to go from bad to worse. Talking about getting up on the wrong side of the bed, the gum that he had placed in his mouth before he went to sleep was now in his hair. He went through a series of accidents, including getting water all over his sweater. He endured public scoldings in school because he didn't remember his lessons. He was served the wrong food. Why would anyone want to give him slima beans, I ask? And throughout this, he kept saying, If only I could move to Australia. As if they didn't have slima beans, water, and school in Australia. Oddly enough, in the Australian versions of the book, he wants to move to Timbuktu. (laughs) There you go. There's a bonus point for fun. That is Haman's day. He didn't wake up because he didn't go to sleep, but it has gone from what he thought was going to be the best day ever to one that progressively gets worse and worse as it goes. He's already endured the humiliation at the hands of Mordecai because he thought the king was going to honor him, and the king asked him to honor Mordecai. But now as he attends uh, Queen Esther's banquet, it's about to get a whole lot worse for Haman. Our big idea this morning is that God triumphs over his enemies at the right time and in the right way. It didn't seem that way before this particular day in Haman's life. It seemed like he is the one who was going to triumph, but it didn't quite turn out that way, praise God. First off, let us recognize that God uses both prayer and our engagement or involvement. You see, the banquet that Haman so greatly anticipated the day before has arrived. His, uh, his joy has been stolen by his encounter with Mordecai, once again. The meal sort of comes and goes without anything of note being referenced here. Um, it's a little confusing when it says the second day, as, and some people could misunderstand that as if this banquet extended over two days. But remember, the first day there was a banquet, and now this is the second day. And there's another banquet. So, um, in between was the sleepless night of the king, as well as the plotting of Haman to erect the pole in his front yard, apparently, so that all could see when he kills Mordecai upon it. And so here they are, having the post-meal glass of wine, or glasses of wine, whatever the case might be. And uh, the king decides this is a good time to once again make his offer to Queen Esther. What I want you to kind of catch here, though, is that in this particular chapter, and in this section here, that phrase keeps being repeated. Queen Esther, Queen Esther, Queen Esther. You're intended to remember her power, her position, her dignity, 
her worth as we look at this. She's not simply a queen, but she is being recognized as Queen Esther. And so he asks, what is your wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? And again, he uses the formula, up until half of my kingdom. Now, when he makes this offer to her, uh, that's a good thing. And yet, you know, you ought to consider that there are some factors at play that may result in the fact that she doesn't get what she's wanting. First off, he's tired. He spent the night listening to the uh, one of his attendants reading from the, the Book of Remembrances, Okay, so he's probably a little tired and a little grumpy, and I don't know about you, but I'm not the most generous person when I'm tired and grumpy. Not only that, but he's also added to it an unknown quantity of wine, and we've seen that when he drinks wine, he can get a little nasty. Okay, remember chapter 1. But let's also remember that he doesn't need wine and tiredness to be impulsive and grumpy. Herodites, the Greek historian, notes that there was a servant of his that went by the name of Pythias. Now, Pythias was someone who um, greatly supported financially Xerxes' excursion to Rome. Uh, not Rome, Greece. And when I say excursion to Greece, I don't mean he went on a cruise. I, of course, mean his um, attempts to conquer Greece. And so Pythias was a powerful and wealthy, influential man. He had entertained the king on numerous occasions, and on one of those occasions, he had a request for the king. He wanted his eldest son to be exempt from the mandatory military service. And here you have the man who helped fund your time in Greece, so the man who has invited you into his house and has wined you and dined you, and you might think that Xerxes would go, well, because it's you, my friend, your son is exempted. That was not the case. He responded by ordering that his son be cut in half and then the army marched through the pieces of his body. And so we see that Xerxes was a very cruel man, a very harsh man, and an impulsive man. It's not just what we see here in the scriptures, but it's also verified by what we read in the historians. And so as she prepares to make this request, I'm sure this reality of who she's dealing with is in the back of her head. But she must come to the moment for which she called this banquet, the very reason that the king is there. But let us note that in a sense, this talk of wishes, this talk of requests is utilizing the language of prayer. She has been praying, I imagine, before this encounter. 
We are reminded, we are told to pray as well from Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. Not only that, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Praying is part of God's will for you. It's often something we do last instead of first or continuing. And so the time of fasting was most likely also a time of prayer for Esther, for Mordecai, and all the Jews that were in Susa. But we see here that she does not simply rely on prayer. She doesn't just say, well, I prayed about it. But she acts. She is involved. She is engaged. She responds to the king and makes known her request and her wish. She petitioned him. So before we get to the petition, I just want us to note that because it's very important. Don't just pray about the election. Vote. Children, don't just pray for good grades. Also, do your homework. If you need a job, pray and also apply for jobs. If you want someone to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, pray but also share the good news of Jesus Christ. Our responsibility, the will of God, includes prayer, but does not end with prayer. But also acting in faith as the circumstances dictate. Now when she answers him, she focuses on the king. She's very wise and subtle, this Queen Esther. She talks about his favor or his grace. She speaks in ways that focus on his pleasure and upon his feelings. She, she wants to somehow, you know, kind of know that she's siding with him, that she cares about the king, and that what really matters is what disturbs the king. That's her concern. She doesn't want the king disturbed. She uses wisdom. Which is interesting when we consider that um, she's been queen for five years, so maybe she's 20. Maybe. Charles Spurgeon said, young people You must pray, for your passions are strong, and your wisdom is little. Young people are often filled with zeal. Their passions are strong. Okay? But they often lack the wisdom to know how best to utilize that zeal. And so they can be prone to excess, overstepping bounds. 
making enemies that they don't have to make, burning bridges that they don't have to burn, and their zeal. She has evidently prayed because she has wisdom so that she doesn't burn these bridges. She doesn't make the wrong enemies in how she approaches this whole thing. She says, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Now, I'm pretty sure that when Xerxes mentioned my wish, my request, he was talking about the same thing, but she sort of breaks them into two and says, I've got one wish and one request. And one is that you, that I live, and two is that my people live. And then she quotes the edict. Now, remember, the signet ring had been given to Haman, so it's quite possible that uh, Xerxes had never seen the edict because he's entrusted all of this into Haman's hands. But when she quotes this, Haman knows exactly what she's talking about, even if the king himself doesn't. To be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. This is the danger that she speaks of with regard to her person as the queen, but also to her people. She has finally come, so to speak, out of the closet, out of hiding, and identified herself as a Hebrew. Now, doing that is very dangerous because now... Apparently the king didn't know and no one else really knew that she was actually a Jew. And now because of the edict, she is under the penalty or the possibility of death. And so she risks her life in order to save the life of her people. Just as Christ identified with sinners in his baptism. He who was without sin became sin to deliver us from sin. So there's something here I think we often we need to pause uh, uh, with regard to as well in that we don't need to be obnoxious Christians. I mean, she was hidden. She was undercover. And as uh, Ian Duguid notes, that she probably broke almost every Old Testament law in order to survive within the king's court for five years without anybody knowing she's a Jew. She's not keeping the Sabbath. She's not eating kosher. She's not offering any sacrifices, obviously because she's not in Jerusalem, but still, she's not living like a Jew, But she makes this request. Now, what we see here in verse 4 is, in fact, I think some of the most difficult stuff to translate in Esther. And it's also very difficult to interpret in Esther. The best guess, so to speak, that was uh, posited by the ESV is, for had we been sold... 
I and my people to be destroyed. And what's interesting is that in uh, Hebrew, they're homophones, destroyed and sold. They sound alike. So there's a bit of, bit of a play on words that goes on here. To be killed, to be annihilated, if, here's the key thing, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. It'd be easy for us to misunderstand that and, and to... I mean, she's, she's making an argument. I don't think she actually believes that. If we were sold as slaves, I'd go along with it. But she's trying to make it sound to the king that, that I'm only doing this because this is so um, troubling and um, unprofitable to you, O king. She's playing into his sensibilities. She's playing into his values. Uh, let's not think that she would be okay being a slave girl. Okay, We don't need to go there uh, at this particular point in time. But she does note that she's concerned about the king and his feelings. And so... She wasn't troubling Xerxes for something as simple, insignificant, so to speak, as being sold into slavery. Now, Xerxes, as the uh, impulsive guy that we know he is, and also the very hands-off king that he is, since he entrusts things to everyone else, and he essentially never makes a decision. He just keeps asking his his advisors, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? He cries out, and it's almost like machine gun fashion, this idea of who, where, who? I don't know what's going on here. Who is threatening you? Where are they? Who would do such a horrible thing? To which she replies rather quickly herself, a foe and enemy, and then points the finger, this wicked Haman. Behold, O king, the traitor in your midst. Behold, O king, the man who sought to kill your queen. So we see that, that uh, pursuing God's will involves both prayer as well as engagement, trusting Him to do wisely. She is not passive here. And nor are we intended to be passive simply because we pray. Secondly, we recognize that God uses government to judge the wicked. We see that the king immediately arose in wrath and went into the palace garden. He's not sure what to do at the discovery that his favorite ruler, the second most powerful man in his empire, is trying to kill his favorite queen. He doesn't care about the other people only about himself. And when you mess with his favorite queen, he's going to be angry. And so he's filled with wrath and removes himself temporarily from the room, perhaps because he cannot control himself. 
She wisely in this, of course, does not implicate Xerxes himself. She doesn't say, why have you, O king, chosen to kill me? It's Haman. This is not like when Nathan shows up to David and tells him the story about the man who stole someone else's animal to feed his friends when they came over and then says, when, when David has righteous indignation, he says, you, O king, are the man. She doesn't point the finger at Xerxes. She only points it at Haman. And so, she does introduce, however, a bit of a, of a dilemma for Xerxes. Because he's the one who entrusted this power to Haman. It's his signet ring that's on the edict. And so while he has sort of taken this hands-off approach, he is still responsible. It's sort of like the NCAA coming down on Rick Pitino for not having proper oversight on his staff in the latest and greatest scandal of his basketball coaching career. Okay? He approved an unjust plan to eliminate an ethnic group without any sense of due process, without just cause. It's almost as if there was a WikiLeaks drop. (laughs) And he doesn't know exactly what to do because not only has Haman been exposed, but he has been exposed. How do I save face and get out of this mix that I'm in? Now, what's interesting is that both Ian Duguid and Brian Gregory note how essentially the ironies begin to pile up like cars on I-10 in the middle of a dust storm. Okay? It's just irony upon irony begins to happen in the context of this story. For instance, we see that Haman, who wants to kill the Jews, is now found begging for his life from a Jew. And not just any Jew, but a woman. No powerful man in his mind, Haman's mind, would be begging before a woman. And yet, there he is, begging for his life from the queen that he inadvertently tried to destroy. But what we see here on the part of Haman is not godly sorrow, as we read about in First, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, but actually worldly sorrow. It's not as if Haman is going, oh, you know, it was wicked of me to want to kill all of these Thousands of people. I never should have done that. That was the wrong thing to do. Haman is more, I got caught trying to kill you, and I don't want to die. (laughs) Worldly sorrow is not about the sinfulness of the action. Worldly sorrow is simply about the consequences we receive. And so he is lamenting the consequences that that he knows are coming, and if the text even says that, he knows that harm is being intended for him. He, it's about the consequences, 
not about the sinfulness of what he tried to do. And so he expresses worldly sorrow, not genuine sorrow or repentance. And in his, in his uh, fear and uh, the, the rush of the moment, what Haman does is he violates the harem rules. No one except for the king was to come within seven steps of a member of the harem. Okay? Because you don't want to be able to touch a member of the harem. You don't want to get so close that you could even be accused of touching a member of the harem. So seven steps was the the boundary that was placed. And what does Haman do in his zeal for his own life? But he plops himself down on the couch next to Esther, well within the seven steps. And that, coincidentally, remember, that's just God remaining anonymous, that coincidentally is when Xerxes walks back into the room. And now Xerxes has his solution. Because now he can take his life for having broken the rules of the harem. The king's rules, which have a penalty of death. Because it seems as if this man who has everything now actually wants everything. He wants the king's wife. That wicked Haman. And so the king has his solution to get out of the mess without admitting any guilt on his own part. And so he accuses Haman of moving in on Esther. That's part of why we read from Genesis this morning, the life of Joseph. Joseph only ended up in prison for being falsely accused of moving in on Potiphar's wife when in reality it was Potiphar's wife who was moving in on him. But here, Haman is going to have a much stiffer penalty. His face, his guilty face is covered by those who are around him. And suddenly one of the eunuchs speaks up. Good old Harbona. By the way, O king, Haman has built a pole in his front yard to kill Mordecai. And then throws in, just for good measure, in case the king had forgotten who Mordecai is from the previous few hours, (laughs) who saved your life. Harbona lets the king know that Haman has a plan to destroy the man that the king had honored that very day. It just got worse for Haman. Because now Xerxes says, hang him on it. The first time in this book that he makes a decision... It is not the decision that Haman wanted to hear. Because the he was him, Haman. He's going to be killed upon the very thing that he 
built to destroy or to kill Mordecai. There's a little bit of irony right there. He began the day wanting to put Mordecai to death, and he ends the day being put to death. Yesterday, we uh, the kids came down from rest time, and uh, there was a John Wayne movie on. I like John Wayne. So I watched the end of Big Jake with them, with the boys. They were enraptured with John Wayne. And if uh, you remember the plot line of Big Jake, it's that uh, his grandson had been abducted by kidnappers for ransom. And the end of the movie is when um, they rescue the boy without paying the ransom. And there's this moment when... um, Big Jake has no bullets left. His gun is gone. He has two bullet holes in him. He's next to the boy, but the main kidnapper is there on his horse with a loaded gun. And he doesn't know who Big Jake is. And he goes, Well, stranger, you got close, but no cigar. And when you think he's about to kill Jake, a bullet sound, you hear a gunfire, and you discover that, in fact, it was the kidnapper who got close, but no cigar, because one of Jake's sons was still alive and shot him instead. I like the end of that. Because as he's dying, he goes, Who are you? Jacob McCandles. I thought you were dead. Hardly. (laughs) And hardly even from his own gun was Jacob McCandles dead. And so we see the irony here that the man who thought he would kill is killed himself. Proverbs 26 Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. That's Haman. He built a pole, and he's hung up on it. He tried to impale someone else, and he ends up getting impaled on on that. For all of our technological engineers, as well as our Scottish people here this morning, Perhaps we should be reminded of Robert Watson Watts. That's enough of my Scottish accent for now. Um, My poor Scottish accent. Some of you might know him as the inventor of radar. He invented it during World War II so they could identify where planes were and know when um, there were bombing missions coming. And so for his trouble... After the Allies' victory in World War II, he became a sir. He was knighted by the uh, the queen. And he was given uh, um, the largest award up to that point in time. I believe it was $147,000 for his efforts. So he was financially rewarded by the royalty for his actions in delivering them from the war, uh, from the Germans, rather. Years later, 
people noted the irony when while driving in Canada, he got pulled over for speeding because of a radar gun. <laughs> and they came up with a little ditty that I will not share with you right now, which ends with, I don't know all of the, I didn't write it down, but it ends with that he was a victim of his own machine. So, Haman is a victim here of his own machine. But it is God who brings about the, the, the justice against wicked Haman through legal means using both Esther and Xerxes. One of the purposes of government is fulfilled in the death of Haman. That's a nice story. But let's go deeper. Let's go farther. Let us, let us see that Jesus prevails over God's enemies upon the cross. You see, there is a bigger storyline at work, just as we had seen earlier when we looked at this. Remember that in Haman, it is Amalek, his people, that are destroyed. We see from Exodus 17 that the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven that it was King Saul who failed to blot them out. Some of them lived. Haman was one of those descendants of that. And now God deals with Amalek through Mordecai and particularly through Esther. And so the pole meant for Mordecai, as we mentioned, ended up being the end of Haman. And we see that this points us to the fact that the cross that was meant to be the end of Jesus actually ended up being the end of the authorities and powers that sought to destroy him. Colossians chapter 2, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. It was the weakness of Jesus that overcame the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of death. Haman was cursed, even in his own culture, by being hung upon that pole. And so, as we read earlier from Galatians chapter 3, all who are on a pole are cursed by God. Christ bore the curse so we can experience the blessing. This is one of the great gospel ironies that pile up when we begin to think about the cross. That's what's going on. That's what it points us to, rather. The great triumph of God through Jesus over the enemy. And right now, we, we live in that already, not yet kind of thing because we live between the cross and the completion of Christ's work to be done at His second advent, the parousia. That's why we read in part from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We suffer now just as the Thessalonian Christians suffered persecution. And the fact that they stood firm in Christ was a sign of the, the opponent's destruction that was to come with the coming of Jesus. And so they were not to give up. They were not to run away. 
but they were to stand firm because of the promise, not just that Christ would come, but that he would afflict those who had afflicted them. And so we stand within the same line. That if Paul were here today, or Paul were, you know, hanging out in China, or in North Korea, or parts of Africa, he would say this to his people, to Christ's people. The fact that you stand firm is a sign of their destruction, not yours. That's the irony. They may think they're destroying you, but God is the one who is going to destroy them in due time. As we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, which our community group will be looking at later on today, the other groups are in other places in Thessalonians, his mere breath is going to destroy the enemy upon his return. He merely speaks, and they will be overcome and judged. And so, right now, yes, as it says in Hebrews 2, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. That's what it looks like right now. At times it looks like Christ did not triumph over the dragon and the two beasts. But He has. And so, while we still suffer under the Hamans of this world, whether they be political dictators or just bullies in the schoolyard or the workplace, bosses who are completely unreasonable, bigots who hate you because you're different. We suffer. But Christ will prevail. There's a reason why I like watching John Wayne movies, and that's because I'm made in the image of God. And some of you are going, yes, yes, yes. And some of you are going, what in the world are you talking about, Steve? Because I've been made in the image of God, and so have you, one of the things that we thirst for and long for, in addition to love and relationship, is justice. We long for all the wrongs to be made right. And so many of our stories have to do with that very thing. Why do you think Star Wars was so popular? Just because it had weird aliens in it? It was about the triumph of good over evil. Why is it the Lord of the Rings was so popular? Because of the triumph of good over evil. Why are all the, the, not all of them, they're the ones made by um, DC don't do very well. Why are the Marvel <laughs> comic book movies so popular? The triumph of good over evil. It is, it is within us to want to see the right side win. And instead of taking matters into our own hands through vengeance, God says, wait, I will take care of it, and I will do it far better than you ever could. Just as he did it with Haman. 
It was poetic and perfect justice that God accomplished, not through the sword, not through poison, uh, you know, not through fraud, but by petitioning the king that Haman saw his downfall. And so we cry out like the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6, How long, O Lord, before You judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Waiting for this moment can be painful. But we wait in faith. And as we suffer under the Hamans of this world, our eyes must be fixed on Christ who for the joy that was set before Him thought little of the scorn of the world, of the shame of the cross, and endured it for us. So, we see that while Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day was actually a fantastic, great, awesome, very good day for Esther and for the Jews as Mordecai is honored, but Haman is put to death. The king's insomnia began this turn for the better as God began to answer the prayers of His people. But we see again that Esther was not passive, but participated by making petitions to the king, making her cause known to the king. And so we live in the victory of Christ, that He has won over the Hamans in our lives by praying, which is, which is an example of trusting Him to bring about His triumph over His enemies. Bringing that into our present circumstances. And by being faithful and acting wisely. In His time and in His way, the victory that Christ won will turn back the tide of our enemies and our foes, wicked people like Haman. Like the Thessalonians, let us stand firm because we have hope. Let's pray. Father, the nations conspire and plot in vain against You. We cannot understand why they think they can succeed. Yet they take their stand against Your Messiah, Jesus. They want to be free of Your authority. They want to be free of Your laws. And You laugh at their puny efforts. You rebuke them in Your anger. You declare to them, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And Jesus, your son, your eternal son, is your appointed king. And you give him the nations as his inheritance. He owns the world that you have created with him and the spirit. He rules over them for His glory, and He will destroy those who rise up against Him. And so may we serve Him with reverent awe. Enable us to kiss His hand, casting our lot in with Him 
against the nations. Indeed, blessed be all those who take refuge in Jesus. Keep us safe, Lord, as we wait for Him to return. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.